You're listening to the Bethel Community Church Podcast. Our podcast normally showcases our weekly sermons here in Chicago at 7601 West Foster. Now, podcasts are great, but they do not replace the care and community you receive from the local church or from your local pastor. So we encourage you to come, join our community, or contact us to help you find a community in your area. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you listen. Enjoy. If you've been to Hobby Lobby recently, or even just the home decor section of Walmart or Target, you've probably seen the sign that says, Family. A little bit of crazy, a little bit of loud, and a whole lot of love. Well, there's truth to that statement about most families, which is probably why the sign's to become popular, and think about it. Do you have people in your own family, perhaps, who you think, am I really related to this person? You're, they're, they're just so different from me. You, know, you, you have those people who are a, a little bit crazy or a little bit loud, or perhaps they're the person who's both crazy and loud. And yet it's within families that there ought to be love even for such people who are very different than us. As we come to Mark 3, verses 7 through 35, we see that Jesus' family, the church, is no different from perhaps your family in that way. The church is made up of people of various backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses, people of different ethnicities, different ages, different stages in life and stages of spiritual growth, perhaps even people of different political affiliations. And yet we all have one thing in common, Jesus. And our response to Jesus is one of Faith in him as the Son of God. So let's look at Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 35. Mark writes, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus 
and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. He called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He's coming to an end. But no one, can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister. Mother. My call to you this morning as we look at this passage is to consider your response to Jesus. Consider your response to Jesus and be a member of Jesus' family who does God's will by repenting and believing in the gospel. So as we walk through this passage, I see four. Wrong ways to respond to Jesus. Four deficient ways to respond to Jesus and to his good news of his saving reign of grace. So we'll look at those four ways and then we're going to consider two proper responses to Jesus. And I'm calling all of us to consider our response to Jesus. Certainly if you haven't yet come to know him, but also for those of us who do Because it's really easy to fall back into wrong responses to Jesus and need to repent afresh. But we also ought to be aware when we're talking with others, when we're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to others, the truth of Jesus, we need to know what is a right from a wrong response. So Mark shows us both wrong and right responses here. We begin in verses 7 through 12, where really Mark gives us a summary of Jesus' ministry. He tells us Jesus has withdrawn from Capernaum, and he is out by the Sea of Galilee again. And it's possible that he has gone from Capernaum out. He's withdrawing, perhaps due to the opposition that he's now facing, but perhaps not. Either way... Jesus cannot escape the crowds. 
Jesus' popularity continues to increase even with the opposition. And it's not only among the Jews. Mark tells us that people are coming from all the points of the compass to Jesus. You have people coming not only from Jerusalem and Judea, you have people coming from Idumea, that is from the south, the southeast, who were descendants of Edom or Esau, Jacob's twin brother. Likewise, there are people coming from Perea, which was east of the Jordan. Then there are people coming from the north around Tyre and Sidon. And so you have this group of people, this crowd around Jesus. Some of them are Jews, some of them are Gentiles. Yet they're all coming to him because they're hearing what he's doing. We see Mark tells us that Jesus continues to cast out demons from those who are being oppressed. And the demons are in terror and in defeat, falling down before him. Now, as people living in America in the 21st century, we've lived in a context where, due to the secular modernism of our day, this is often denied, this reality of a spiritual uh, existence. That there is this, that there's a, an unseen spiritual realm. But we must be clear That there is. But we also must avoid another mistake on the other hand. Because it's easy to think that anything that's unusual that we just can't explain, well, maybe that's some sort of demonic activity. And so often people think that with mental illness, for instance. But there's a difference between a mental illness and demonic oppression. Demonic oppression can certainly contribute to mental illnesses, but we cannot say if somebody has a mental illness, oh, they're oppressed by demons. We don't know. But as we see this here, we see two wrong responses to Jesus. First by the crowd, the first wrong response in verses 7 through 10 is that they're seeking Jesus merely as a means to an end. Mark tells us they've come, verse 8, why? Because they've heard all that he was doing. They're not coming because they have heard the gospel. They're not coming because they are sinners recognizing they need a Savior. They're just coming to get from Jesus what they want. You look around today and, and you can build a megachurch, really, by promising them people that Jesus will give them whatever they want. But ask yourself today, whether you're here or watching online, how are you responding to Jesus? Why do you seek Jesus? Is it because you want Jesus or just because you want what Jesus can give you, or what you think he can give you. So one of the main problems with that is it doesn't deal with our sin problem. It doesn't deal with our need for a Savior. So this is a wrong response, to seek Jesus as a means to an end. There's a second wrong response in verses 11 through 12 with the demons, and certainly Mark doesn't think any of us are going to take the demons as a good example. But they're a contrast even with 
the religious leaders that we see in verses 22 through 30. At least the demons get Jesus right. They know who he is. But of course, demons won't be saved. Their response to Jesus is insufficient. They know the truth about Jesus. But of course, they don't respond with saving faith. In James 2 verse 19, James says, You believe that God is one. You do well. James is saying, as far as that goes, that's good. But he says, even the demons believe that. And they shudder. See, in James 2, James is addressing a deficient form of faith. One that knows the facts, but, but a faith that doesn't transform our lives is because it's not a faith that's coming from our hearts, from a transformed life. Such faith isn't saving, and so it's not a right response to Jesus. We'll come back to verses 13 through 19 in a moment. First, jumping on to verses 20 through 30, we see two other wrong responses. We see Jesus' family, who we'll see again in verses 31 to 35. But sandwiched right between there then is the scribes. They've come from Jerusalem. And they are truly opposed to Jesus. And so let, let's consider these both for a moment. First, Jesus' family. And Jesus' family, as we're told in verses 31 through 35, would have included his mother Mary. Joseph isn't mentioned. Perhaps he's died by this time. But there's also his brothers, or at least his half-brothers, who would have been the, the sons of Mary and Joseph. And from Matthew 13, verse 55, we learn Jesus had at least four other brothers. He, he had James, who wrote the book of James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, who wrote the book of Jude. And we learn throughout the Gospels, including John 7, you can read that later, Jesus' brothers, though they were seeing what he was doing, they didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. They were typical of many in the first century. We're told in John 1 verse 11 that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. We see that here with his family. And this is where we see the third wrong response. It's considering Jesus a lunatic. Just looking at what Jesus is saying and thinking, all right, he, he's just confused. C.S. Lewis made famous what is called the trilemma. He wasn't the first one to state it, but he made it famous in his book, Mere Christianity. The trilemma is that you can consider Jesus either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. C.S. Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says that is one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and claim him as Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Certainly there are people today who would say, well, besides that, maybe the disciples just completely got Jesus wrong. That's not much of an option for us. If they got Jesus wrong, then we know nothing about Jesus because they're the only witnesses that we have. Others have said that, oh, the gospel accounts are just myths and legends that were made up. C.S. Lewis himself was a literary expert, and he said, no, that's not a real option. And so we really are back at either Jesus is a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Perhaps you're here today dismissing Jesus, thinking he was just a religious zealot. He thought too much of himself, got caught up in it all, and he got crucified. That is a wrong response, as Mark is showing us. Jesus wasn't some megalomaniac. No, Jesus was always in his right mind. And so considering Jesus a lunatic really isn't a right response. There's a fourth wrong response, that of the scribes. It is to reject Jesus as a liar. Notice they're saying, yeah, Jesus might be claiming to be empowered by the Spirit of God. He might be claiming to cast out demons by the Spirit of God, but in reality, he is empowered by none other than Satan himself. Now this makes sense in sort of a a convoluted way. If Jesus is the boss of the demons, you know, they're they're kind of his employees, or or he's their commander, and, and they're his soldiers, well, that's why he's got authority over them. As Jesus makes clear in verses 23 to 26, that's a bunch of nonsense. I mean, think about it. Does it really make sense? Are demons just like you know the orcs from Lord of the Rings? They'll just fight each other. D- does that really make sense for Satan and his demons? That they're just engaged in some sort of civil war? As Jesus says, kingdoms and houses that are divided don't stand long. If Satan's forces are, are just attacking one another... It's not going to be long before he's in ruins. So Jesus gives us a better explanation in verse 27. He says, But no one can enter a strong man's house, in other words, Satan's the strong man, and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Jesus has come and he he has bound, he has checked Satan so that he can set people free their bondage so that he can transfer transfer us from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
Let me be clear. There are those today who practice what they would call binding Satan or binding demons. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not giving the church some practice to do that. It's Jesus himself who is the one who is binding them and stopping them. So Jesus doesn't want us to think, oh, we, you know, somehow were to do this. No, he's the one doing this. The Jewish leaders were getting this all wrong. And so as we see here, they were in danger of what Jesus calls an eternal sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now what, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, as we see in verse 30... It's what the religious leaders were doing. They were seeing the work of the Spirit of God through Jesus. And they were instead saying, no, he has an unclean spirit. They were rejecting the ultimate saving work of God. And if you reject the saving work of God through Jesus, there is no other way to be forgiven and saved. They were making the same error that the first generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt made. And God had warned them. In Exodus 23, verses 20 and 21, God says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I've prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him for he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. And so if God warned them as an angel was going to lead them to the promised land, how much more should we be warned today? How much more should the leaders of the Jews in the first century have been warned? Don't make that same error. If they were warned when it came to an angel leading them to salvation, how much more for us when it is the Son of God himself who has come to save us? You see, if you reject Jesus... You cannot be saved. You cannot be forgiven because there's no other way but through his death on the cross in our place. Now, many Christians worry. I remember when I was young in the faith, I worried, you know, did I commit this eternal sin? Did I do something that God's not going to forgive me and send me to hell for? I can tell you if you're Concerned about that, you probably haven't committed this sin. Because this isn't merely unbelief, this is an outright rejection of Jesus and the saving work of God through him. So we've seen four wrong responses to Jesus. Seeking Jesus is merely a means to an end. Only knowing the truth about Jesus, but not repenting and putting your faith in him. Considering Jesus a lunatic or or considering him a demon-possessed liar. Those are wrong responses to Jesus. So what's the right response? Well, it's to own him as your Lord and Savior. How do you do that? Well, Mark shows us. Look back at verses 13 through 19. 
The right response is to receive the apostolic gospel. And you read verses 13 through 19 here, and it's you know, what Mark says here is pretty jarring. It's almost like it comes out of nowhere. Mark purposefully has Jesus choosing the 12 here. Why? Verse 14, they're his appointed witnesses. They're his apostles, his sent ones. And so they're to be with him so that they can learn him and his ways and so that he can then send them out to proclaim the good news and to continue his work. We aren't apostles today. There were 12 who were these witnesses. That's why when you come to Acts chapter 1, you find after Judas has betrayed Jesus and Judas has killed himself, Jesus is, is risen, Jesus ascends back to the Father, and the 11 disciples then say, okay, we need one more to get back to 12 witnesses. And so in Acts 1, verses 21 and 22, Peter says, So one of the men who've accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Well, there were only two possible men who met these requirements. There was Barsabbas called, or Joseph called Barsabbas, and there was Matthias. Matthias is the one who's chosen. Why did there need to be 12? Well, this was symbolic. Just as there were 12 uh, brothers who, who were the sons of Jacob, so there were to be 12 who were apostles, who were a, a renewal, a restoration of Israel. A start to the new covenant people of God. You see, as Ephesians 2 says, it's on the foundation of the apostles and prophets that the church is built. What that means is, even today, 2,000 years later, we are an apostolic church. We believe, we confess, and we proclaim the same message that the apostles have passed down to us. And it's in them that we have the truth come to us. It is in this church that what was true of God's old covenant people becomes true of us as his new covenant people. Quoting from Exodus 19, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, You, dear church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Why? Because we have come to receive in faith that same message. It's interesting you read this list of Jesus' disciples. They're, they're a pretty motley crew. You've got four fishermen. You've got Simon, who 
Jesus names Peter the rock. You've got James and John. Apparently, they're a little hot-headed, so Jesus calls them sons of thunder. You've got Peter's brother, Andrew. You've got Philip, who is a Jew with a Greek name. You've got Bartholomew, who is probably elsewhere called Nathaniel. Matthew, who is, as we saw last week, Levi the tax collector. You've got Thomas, who, of course, comes doubting Thomas, even though he only doubted once. We can hardly blame him for it. You've got James, the son of Alphaeus, who may have been Matthew's brother. You've got Thaddeus, who elsewhere is apparently Judas, not Iscariot. You've got Simon, who's a zealot, which meant that he was a patriotic Israelite. He was a Zionist. And so think about this. Within these 11 even, within the 12, you have one guy who's a tax collector working in some way for Rome, and then you've got another guy who's a Zionist, a patriot. And this would have been like having a progressive Democrat uh, along with, with a you know, make America great again wearing Trump supporter, and they're in this group together. And then you've got Judas, who who is probably the only one not from Galilee. And here we see, what is it that united them? It's Jesus. They are the nucleus of his new covenant family. If you read throughout the New Testament, as Dr. John Hammett points out, more than 200 times the church is referred to by the metaphor family. More than any other metaphor by far in the New Testament. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got people from different ethnicities. We've got people in differing jobs. We've got people who come from differing backgrounds, people who might vote differently. We've got people of different ages, people who like different things. Some people in here might even root for the Packers. You may even have some in here who root for the Cubs and others who root for the Sox. And yet, what is it that we have in common? It's Jesus. Jesus unites us. And so in the church, even though we've got some people who are a little crazy, even though we've got some people who are a little loud, what are we to be marked by? Love. Why? Because we have a bond that goes deeper than blood. We are blood-bought family in Christ. So like them, it's going to be important, as we see, to be with Jesus, reading the Bible, studying it, knowing Jesus, praying to him, relying on him. This is why it's important that we gather and grow so that then we can practice our faith and go and take the good news to those who are around us, proclaiming the truth of Jesus. And so... We're to respond by receiving the apostolic message. That's where it has to begin. And then the second response is we're to do God's will. Look with me at verse 35. Jesus says, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You often, Christians, talk about the will of God as something 
secret that we have to somehow, you know, find some mysterious thing like, all right, is it God's will for me to marry this person? Or is it God's will for me to buy this car? Or is it God's will for me to take this job or whatever it might be? Well, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Instead, Jesus is saying that the will of God is something that's been revealed to us. As Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever so that we may do all the words of this law. What is Jesus saying it is to do God's will? Well, it's to respond in obedience to God. And we're not saved by doing God's will. You don't become part of the family by doing God's will because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short. None of us keep God's will perfectly. That's why it's important to understand you begin by doing God's will by repenting of your sins, believing in the good news of Jesus, being reconciled to God. And it comes with a glorious promise John 1, verses 12 and 13, John tells us to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Do you see that? When you receive Jesus, when you believe in him, when you own him as your Lord and Savior, you become part of the family of God. Doing God's will then is evidence. It's evidence that you have been born again into the family of God. Obedience is the fruit that grows on the tree of faith. So how can you know and do God's will? You get to know what God says. Romans 12 verse 2. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What does God's will look like? Looks like knowing what God says in the scriptures and putting that into practice. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality and each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles do who do not know God. Likewise, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, what is God's will? That you rejoice always that you pray without ceasing, that you give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. You know, every family has its own particular behaviors, its own particular actions and words that are acceptable and unacceptable. Every family has its own expectations, what you are to do and not to do. Every family has its values. I remember that in college I had an apartment mate who regularly watched 
sports movies that, that were inspirational. He'd watch Rudy again and again. He had motivational posters all over his walls. He, he was a, an optimistic guy, and so whenever somebody was needing encouragement, he was there to encourage them. He was there to motivate them. We came to understand why that was. His father was a football coach. And so that's the way his family operated. They were continually encouraging and motivating one another. And so that's what he did. It's the same with the family of Jesus. God is our father. And so what do we value? What do we expect? That we would do the will of God. What God calls and commands us to do. Not by our own strength, but in faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. What ought to characterize us is Jesus' family. Is that we do what is good and acceptable and perfect. Because that's the will of our Father in heaven. To him be the glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that apart from anything in us, you welcome us into your family because of what Jesus has done. And only through our faith in him. Father, we pray for anyone who is in here who hasn't yet become a part of the family of Jesus, that today you would draw them to yourself and give them new life by your spirit. Father, for all of us, help us to do what is good and acceptable and pleasing to you. We love you, Lord. We ask that you would help us to live in light of what you teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.